following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Kinsey, our Bible reader, is out camping, so I'm going to do the Bible reading this morning. We are in Acts chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 54. Acts 7, verse 54, we're continuing the story of Stephen, and we pick it up right after Stephen has just told all of the most powerful judges and rulers in the land that they don't obey the law. Here's what they say, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to understand why you gave us a Bible. It's not just story time for feeling good. You gave us words from your own being to help change us and make us come alive. I pray that you'd help us to see that, to have that register in the deep place of our soul. This example we've been looking at in Stephen is profound. You're trying to tell us something today here in Portland, in our lives, in our church. Help us to hear you. Help us to not cover our ears and run from you. You are good. You are great. You are greatly to be praised, and that's why we're here. We love you. Amen. Okay, we've, uh, we're coming to the end now of this little mini-series that we've done in the story of Stephen. This is Memorial Day weekend, and I would say today, on this fine Memorial Day weekend, today, we're going to talk about one of the greatest war heroes that ever existed in the history of humanity. This is the powerhouse fighter. This is, if you've studied or thought deeply in the book of Revelation, what John is trying to get at. Jesus' army wages war against evil without weapons. Stephen 
is a war hero in the greatest right, the first martyr in the history of the church. Who's he fighting? We're going to consider him this morning, and I think through his story we see the terrible beauty of being alive. Why is Stephen so brave? Where does his courage come from? And then why is he doing this in the first place? Why is he here preaching this sermon? What's the point of setting himself up to fail and get murdered? What's in it for him? You've got to think about that. At the end of this scene is a man who's crippled down on his knees being beaten to death with rocks. What's he doing that for? Good life insurance policy? Has he got something up his sleeve? What is Stephen, what's in it for him that he would submit himself to this kind of treatment? And then finally, how is that man we see, Stephen, who is totally misunderstood, he's falsely accused, he is unjustly executed, beaten to death with rocks. It's utterly barbaric the way that he dies. How is it that this man can be said to be at peace? It just doesn't compute. If you're sitting there where Stephen is, is your face glowing like that of an angel? It didn't say it was glowing. It just said that he had a face like that of an angel. I look at that and I think, I'm sweating. I'm stressed. I'm terrified. This is brutal. But in the passage that we've been reading, it was two weeks ago we looked at the verses where it said, Stephen's not anxious. He's not nervous in the least. How is that possible? That's totally crazy. So we come to the end of his story today. And we see this picture of peace in his own soul. I'd ask you the question, do you desire peace? Does anybody here in this room with me, when I say I absolutely long for peace, I long for peace in my soul, peace in my mind. My mind spins all day, every day. It's hard for me to sleep. My mind is always going, I want peace. What about peace in your memories? How many of you carry memories that you hope to God don't come back into your mind or heart today? Perhaps even some of you here today on this weekend, as we're asked to remember, we don't want to. We're not at peace. So if you're like me, you long for peace. And if you're like me, you don't long for peace for like lunchtime or, or three or four hours. You long for deep, strong, infinite, soul-level peace. That's what we see in Stephen, but it just doesn't compute. Because what you and I have learned in this country, in this era, about how to achieve peace, that's very different <laughs> than what I think Stephen would teach us, and certainly than what Jesus teaches us. Let's look at it again a little bit more carefully. Verse 54. I want to look first at the secret of Stephen's courage. Why is this dude so courageous? When they had heard these things, they became furious and they gnashed their teeth or they ground. Bite your teeth down. I mean, maybe don't do it, but you know, have you ever bitten your teeth down so hard it almost feels like there's a little powder in between them? 
have, you know. They're grinding, their, the action verb is grinding. So they're grinding their teeth. They're furious. Then Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked intently toward heaven. That's it's weird. Somebody's yelling and angry with you. You're like, you can hear the light. You know, oh, you know. The light, I'm sure, came down as the clouds opened up. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked intently toward heaven and he saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he says, you almost wonder here, Luke is almost playing with us. Is he seeing something that nobody else can see? Look, everybody, and they're like, this guy's cray-cray, what is he talking about? He sees Jesus. I don't know, it's kind of mysterious here. I see the heavens opened. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, surrounded by threat, vicious anger, brutal death on the way. He knows where he's standing, and he looks up to heaven, and he says, look at us, Jesus. He's right where he's supposed to be, the place of ultimate power. Hmm. What usually sparks our courage? What makes you feel courageous? Do you feel more courageous if you have a million bucks in the bank account? Or when, you're, or when you're in school debt and credit card debt? At what point do you feel more strong, more able to take on the world, right? What if I just plopped a cool mill in everybody's savings account right now? How would you, what would you go into the rest of the day feeling? Man, you'd feel at peace. Ah. Oh. Mortgage, rent, school debt, I can bless others. I, I just, the whole sunny day would be infinitely more sunny if you had another, another million. You know, we already have a couple million each, but when you had one more million, then you'd be great. Money makes us feel courageous. Do you feel more courageous when people are supporting and affirming you or when people are lying about you and hurting you? At what, at what point do you say, we can take this hill, we've got this, I have courage? Is it when you're surrounded by people who are supporting you? Or is it when you're surrounded by people who are judging you and hurting you and criticizing you? What makes you feel more courageous? I think that people agreeing with us and liking us makes us feel more courageous. You can feel it. Do you feel more courageous when you're all on your own or when you're part of a big movement. A grizzly bear is attacking you. Do you want to fight him alone or with a hundred people? Part of a movement against the, the rabid bear. You know, what makes you feel more courageous, going it alone or being a part of a movement, something big, something important, something noteworthy? Something happens to us when we feel like we're part of something big. We feel more courageous. So if that's kind of what we're prone to be like, then what happens when you are living in a recession and you have school debt and you have credit card debt and you have house debt and rent to pay and you're living in a time where news broadcasts almost always diminish you and your faith and when you're part of a group of radical kind of fringe weirdos not a respectable, acceptable movement. What happens to us? 
when we're not having the finances, the approval, and the bigness and the popularity. I think we get a little bit less courageous because that's often where our courage is sourced. We feel more scared. I, I think we could all agree the common feeling or emotion of our culture and city and world is fear. I, I don't think you'd have to make an argument to prove that. Turn, somebody pull out a phone and pull up CNN's website right now and tell me if it's encouraging or fearful. <laughs> you know, is it, hey, this is going to be a great old day, or is it, oh my gosh, it's coming for you? you know, that's how it is. It feels like this then, in the midst of the place we live, if our courage comes from those sources, we start to say things like, man, where are we going? What's the point? We don't have money. We don't have popularity. We're not part of a big movement. Uh, what are we doing? We start to feel unsettled, unsure, anxious, nervous. We're bummed out, anything but courageous. Then God tells us the story of Acts, of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. And I think his example is really challenging to us. The guy that Stephen learned his way of life from, you know, Stephen didn't just flip a quarter one day and say, oh, I'm going to live this way. It looks pretty cool. He, he had a teacher. And the guy that he learned how to live from said things like, even though foxes have dens and birds have nests, I don't have a place to lay my head, the son of man. This is the same son of man Stephen just saw in the clouds. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was very poor. He truly did not have much money. The thing that this teacher of Stephen, Stephen's teacher, loved and talked about the most, the gospel, the kingdom of God, those were not super popular. They were interesting and novel, and he certainly gained a following, but it was the kind of following that ultimately got him killed. <laughs> so it's, a, it's popular in a real unique way that we kind of say, I want to be popular, not necessarily in that way, because then you get killed. So, but he learned this from him. He believed in him. His courage, this Jesus, was related to an unbreakable bond that he knew he had with the Father. Was Jesus courageous because he was loaded? No. Was he, was he courageous because he had a huge movement? No, he had 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him, and they all abandoned him at the end. Well, it's not a real big movement. What was Jesus courageous Jesus' courage came from the fact that he knew in the deepest place of his soul that he had an unbreakable bondedness with the Father. And the Father, the Creator, is the ultimate source of all power. Jesus' confidence was there. Well, I think Stephen's is too. He takes on the same courage. He's focused on Jesus alone. Luke suggests to us that he is not, Stephen is not a wild man who's just filled with some sort of blind courage. I don't know, just run in and die. It's not that. He's not, Stephen is not portrayed to us as a man who, who has courage because he's just passionate about ministry. It's not that. It says nothing other than he was what? 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Do a quick inventory of your thoughts and emotions in the past 30 minutes. The fears, the anxieties, the worries, the things that you have processed in the last 30 minutes. Does it reveal to you a filling of the Holy Spirit? Or does it reveal to you a filling of popular America? Here he is facing sure death, and he is more alive than anybody around him, Stephen. Luke makes you feel it with his ambiguous language, his weird words about how he looks like an angel. He has filled with the Spirit. He's at peace. There is a terrible beauty to being truly alive. I think we fear real life. It's terrible because it means I can't live the way I think I'm supposed to according to the world. And yet Jesus is so beautiful. Don't you want to live like him? Don't you want to have that heart that he has? I do not love all human beings the way that Jesus does. And I want to. There's a terrible beauty to being truly alive, to being real. Ever think of it that way? All these men who hate him are living a lie. Fakeness, pretense. Their courage comes from the mob, from the movement mentality. It feels so good, and yet the power is fickle and fleeting. It always fades, doesn't it? What nation, what movement? What construction of mankind has ever lasted? That was the lesson last time we looked at the story of Stephen, where he said, or God says, through the prophet Isaiah, what are you going to build that I have to dwell in? I own all this stuff. Your things don't contain me. We're so longing for that connection. The mob is fake. What they see power in is fleeting, fickle, and it always fades. But Stephen is looking at Jesus, which means he's looking at the most real human being ever. He's looking at a human being who never stopped showing forgiveness. He never stopped being gracious. He never stopped living out of deep love. That's real. That's a real human being. I don't know why when I was young I was taught that somebody who's always loving, always gracious, always kind-hearted, always building other people up. That kind of person's kind of weak sauce. That's how I was raised. I was raised with big heroes who slaughtered the enemy. And as a little boy, I thought, that's what I want to be. Swords and knives and guns take out the bad guys. Jesus was cool, but weak. This is the way to really, truly live, Jesus says, looking at himself. His language was, I am the way. I'm the truth. It's Jesus saying, I'm real. I'm the way. The way I'm living is real. It's real human. 
I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Jesus said, what he's saying is, to the degree you're not living in my life, you're dead. That's death. Outside of Jesus' way of life is only death. I think Stephen grabbed hold of those statements. He's living by them. Now, he is brave because he trusts Jesus and he remains attentively focused on him. But we might wonder if Stephen just feels courageous or if he actually acts with courage. Now, I've already read the whole story, so you're like, well, we know how this goes, Ben. He is courageous. But back up just for a second because I think this is really important. Is this just an early story about a guy who uses religion to make himself feel better, to feel courageous? Or does he actually act with courage? I want to say next that we see Jesus, or we see Jesus in Stephen's example. Stephen is not just saying, man, because of Jesus, I feel great. Because of Jesus, I feel sure about the future. Because of Jesus, I feel courageous. He says, I'm going to live like Jesus. I'm going to actually be courageous. I'm going to act with courage. We'll do the same verses, but from a different angle. They heard these things, they became furious, and they gnashed their teeth. I'm going to come back to that. Stephen, full of the Spirit, looks to heaven. He sees God. Notice he's looking upward. There he sees the heavens open, the Son of Man standing there. We see a, a picture of peace. These guys were mad. That language of gnashing teeth. When I was a boy, when I was being taught about hell, I was always taught that hell is a place where people are going to be gnashing their teeth. And the image that I derived from that was that's a place where the gnashing of the teeth means they're in deep, deep agony from all the fire that's burning them, and they're, and they're just in sorrowful pain. That's not what gnashing of the teeth is in the New Testament idiom. The gnashing of the teeth is a picture of raw, rebellious anger, okay? So those who are in the, even in the end times in that language we see in John and the apocalyptic literature of the people gnashing their teeth, they're not, they're not saying, oh man, this is so painful. They're saying, I hate God and I hate his kingdom and I'm rebelling against it perpetually. So that's the language here. These guys are super, super mad at him. And now, imagine Stephen receiving those looks. Put yourself in his sandals. Try to feel what it's like to have this surrounding. I mean, there's hundreds of people around. Staring at you, grinding their teeth, receiving hate. Have you ever been on the receiving end of hate? I have. I suspect all of us have more than once. Just because you're a human in this world, I'll put a bet on that. You have received hate from people. What happens to your body when you know that the person in front of you hates you? One of two things, right? Fight or flight. You either buckle down, feel diminished, and protect or run, or you power up and say, it's on, baby, let's do this. When you feel that hatred coming at you, Imagine that group sick of you because of your love for Jesus, sick of you because of your stupid beliefs and dumb talk about the temple, your ridiculous trust that Jesus forgives your sins and the sins of the world. 
your absolutely insane conviction that he did resurrect, he is truly alive, you just saw him in heaven next to the Father, and, and you have said to people, he's growing his kingdom, and, 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 and he's restoring and renewing his creation, and everybody is listening to you and saying, this dude is an absolute lunatic, they hate you, you're ignorant, you're wicked, you're worthy of death, How's your heart in that moment? What are you doing inside in your physical being? What are you thinking about? You're, you're either ready to fight or you're ready to run. And in both cases, what are you doing? Well, you're preserving yourself. I'm not guilt tripping you here, that's just how it works. When you're standing in the face of raw evil and it's coming at you, you think about self. What do I need to do to not die and to survive? I guess those are the same thing. You're self-focused. It's just naturally. And if that's the case, notice where your eyes look. Notice what you're paying. I'm going to fight, let's say, to preserve myself. I have laser-focused attention on their movements their facial expressions, who's coming at me. I'm watching the hate, I'm ducking the punches, I'm, I'm looking right in front of me, okay? What if I'm gonna run? If I'm running away to preserve myself, I'm looking down, I'm trying to find a running lane. How can I get out of this crowd, right? In both cases, that's what you're doing. You're looking at your combat, you're looking at a way out. What is Stephen doing? He's looking to things above. In either case, those reactions look down, but Stephen looks to things above. He fixes his vision and his mind and his heart on things above. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, that's verse 55, looked intently toward heaven. He saw God and he saw Jesus. I would say this to all of us, men, women, children in this community, we will be embracing the life of Jesus, walking more fully in his indestructible life, and that's our goal, to be in his indestructible life. We will be doing that when we help one another face tremendous pain, face hatred, face injustice with an attitude of strong peace. When we help people turn their gaze to Jesus instead of the threat level right on the ground. Stephen stays more human than all of the rest of the people in this scene. And because he, like Jesus, doesn't fight the hatred, he doesn't run from the hatred, he stays right face to face with it, and he loves his enemy. all while staying perfectly focused on Jesus, his only hope. It's easy to say Jesus is our only hope. My bank account does not suggest that I believe that. It's easy to say Jesus is, is the only chance we have. Look at the way you've spent time in the last week and ask yourself, do I really believe that? Because if you do look at the chaos and brokenness of the world, I think that any reasonable human being is ultimately going to conclude, 
We can live here. We can flourish here. We can be a part of God's restoring work and all of that. And it's beautiful. But we don't have a chance without Jesus. So what are the things we're trusting in besides him? The Holy Spirit of God wants to help us as a community think deeply about those things and act courageously. Stephen is believing in Jesus, yes. And he is going to die for it, yes. But that's interesting. This reminds, does this remind you at all? Stephen looking upward in the midst of pain, sure death. It reminds me of that scene where everybody's dying and they have to look up to the snake. This is Old Testament storytelling, but they have to look up. They have to look away from all the chaos and the brutality around them and look, and if they do, they're healed. This is out of John 3.14. John is writing, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Hmm. John is associating, remember when they lifted up the snake? People had to look at it to be saved. This is way back. In the same way, Jesus has to be lifted up. He's talking, of course, about the cross. And now we have to look to Jesus. Then he says in verse 15, so that everybody who believes in him may have eternal life. And then there's a passage that I think nobody here has ever heard, John 3, 16. For this is the way that God loved the world. It's really important. In the, in the Greek, I think it is more accurate to see that as this is how God loved the world. For God so loved the world, this is how he did it. He sacrificed his only unique son. He gave him so that everybody who is believing in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Awesome. Stephen can remember that. I'm looking at Jesus. I won't perish. Then he gets stoned to death. Hmm. Stephen believes in Jesus, but he's perishing, isn't he? He's about to die. Wow. I think that's the mystery of the gospel. These are those mysterious moments from Jesus where people are really thirsty. He gives them a cup of water. He says, I know you need a cup of water, and guess what? You don't need that water. You need living water. And people are really hungry, and Jesus comes in, and he knows their bodies need nourishment, so he gives them bread, and they're thankful for bread, and he says, I'm glad I could give you bread, but you don't need that bread. You need living bread. You need the bread of life, the living water. You need something more. He's always juxtaposing what we believe life to be with this ambiguous, strange idea we can't quite grasp. So here is Stephen, who's being beaten to death with rocks, and he is not perishing. He looks like a loser, and he's the most powerful human being in the world right now. He looks like he's losing the greatest battle, and he's the strongest war hero that we've seen. It's amazing, but he's battling with the tools and the weaponry of Jesus, which is love, forgiveness, grace. He is literally, Stephen, he is literally living out the life that Jesus has welcomed him into. Stephen's whole hog on this. He's like, I'm in it. So I think Luke, Luke is the guy writing this for us. He shows Stephen in the same light as Jesus. He wants you to see the connection to Jesus. I think you probably already sensed that in the way that the story reads. And that leads us to our last thought this morning. We've seen the secret of Stephen's courage, looking to Jesus and remembering his great power that Jesus is not dead. 
we see that. We see the way that he didn't just get a feeling of courage and go about his day to day. He actually acted in courage. And now he lives like Jesus for real. Ask this, if Stephen were here today, this is, I thought, this is an interesting thought. You ask yourself, why do I love people? For what reason do I love others? If Stephen were here today, I don't think that he would love you and me because of how hopeful and peaceful and wonderful we made him feel. All right? So imagine Stephen coming into our context and really saying, I love you guys. I don't think he would, that that love for us would be dependent on how well we served him, how well we encouraged him, how well we built him up. I think he would love us because we're a people. He would love us because we're miracles of God. He loves the people who are beating him to death with stones. And I wouldn't do that to Stephen, I guarantee it. There's a few things I'll promise in this life, but I'll promise that I would never beat him to death with rocks. I'd be nice to him. But even so, that wouldn't be why he loves me. Ask yourself this, do you love people in your life who are unworthy of your love? Who have not earned the right to be loved by you? Do you love criminals? Well, I'm not saying, do you think of the abstract idea of being a criminal and then love it? No, nobody loves being the idea of being a criminal. What about people who have records and histories, are coming out of halfway houses, are trying to get their feet on the ground? Do we love them? What about people who are not in the country legally? Do we love them or do we only see them as threats and problems, not as miracles of God? Do you love people who steal from you? What about people who gossip about you and slander you behind your back? If the answer is no, I don't love those kinds of people. And I'll tell you, I don't. Who just inherently loves people who harm them constantly? Nobody does. We all have just a knee jerk of stay away from me, I protect myself from you. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit changes that. He changes us to be courageous. And the courage comes from unselfish love. It's not a love that seeks to preserve self. It's a love that's rooted in the love of Jesus. And we say, Jesus loved people this way. He called me to love people this way. It looks ridiculously dumb. And yet I don't know anybody else who raised from the dead. I'm gonna live that way. I'm gonna trust him even if it costs me my very life. I'm gonna live in love toward others because Jesus does. And he invites me to do the same. Or you can go about trying to hybrid pop culture with Christianity and see how that works. It's very exhausting to me. I believe that if you and I made Stephen feel as though he was despised, rejected, judged, condemned, oppressed, treated unjustly, I believe if we did all of those things to Stephen, he would still love us. 
He would go through that dreadful turmoil with us because A, he knows that Jesus loves us, and B, he knows that this turmoil of the world we exist in will come to an end. God has promised it, he believes it, and Stephen doesn't feel like it's his job to bring it to an end. He trusts that God will. So he can take that Jesus creed we read to heart and say, I don't know how to fix this world, but I know that I can love God and I can love others with every fiber of my being. And that's what he does. His dreadful turmoil ends in a very strong peace. Verse 57, they hear him say this. They hear him talking about the Lord being revealed in the clouds, and they covered their ears, shouting with a loud voice, and they rushed at him with one intent. They barged, they seized upon him for one reason only. Luke is telling us that the people believed they were hearing him speak blasphemy. That's why they cover their ears. They don't want to hear it anymore. I can't hear this. I can't hear this. The idea that a human being, Jesus, could be at the right hand of God, not only a human being, but a low, low-class human being, a criminal, crucified, manual laborer from one of the least respected parts of the country. That guy is sitting with God? I don't think so. So he, they hear him blaspheming. They cover their ears. They rush forward. They seize him. They drag him out of the city. Luke does not reveal to us that there was a high priest. There's no verdict. There's no court. There's no trial. There's no evidence. This is straight mob mentality. We are lynching him. It's, it's a lynching. It's a first century lynching. And that's what they do. Verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. I don't know what Luke is quite doing here. We're being invited to see the first pictures of Saul. Saul will turn to Paul and we'll see him go big in Acts. But right here, Saul seems to be on the side in a place of power and respect. And so they're laying their cloaks down. He's watching this. They continued to stone Stephen. Sometimes they would bury the person about waist deep in the ground so that they couldn't move around. And then they would just keep launching rocks until they were toast. Imagine now as the blood starts to form around his body and the piles of rocks that are there and Stephen's body becoming less and less lifeless with each hit of the rock, teeth breaking out. I mean, this is brutal death. Here he is, crippled, despised, shamed, beaten, feeling every single boulder pounding into his bones, breaking them, and this is what he says. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, That is utterly shocking. I watched the story of Jesus, and he says that from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I've read it so many times, and it's, I just like expect it, because I know the crucifixion story so well. This story helps me to remember the crucifixion story. 
And this story is a picture not of Jesus, the Son of God, crying out. You almost expect it because we've heard it so much and it's God in the flesh. This is not God in the flesh. This is Stephen in the flesh who's living in the life of that God. And he too is able to say, as the last rocks beat the last bits of death out of him, not please vindicate me and take out these evildoers, not please give my countrymen the money and the power that they need to fight this oppressive injustice. Please don't let this happen to anybody else. He doesn't say any of that. He says, God, please forgive them. That is the heart of love that I pray for every single day that this community, us, would adopt. That that heart would beat in this community as one. That we would be able to say to our neighbors, to our oppressors, to those who lie and cheat and harm and hurt us, God, forgive them. Forgive them as you forgive us. As John says, this is what love is, that he laid down his life. That is unselfish love. That is unselfish love. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Let's pray. Let's think about this moment, what it would take for him. Stephen wasn't a, some sort of brilliant scholar, some sort of genius who had it all figured out. He was a man who really trusted Jesus, and he knew the most powerful thing this world has ever seen in terms of fighting evil and actually transforming people to goodness. The most powerful thing is forgiveness. Father, would you help us to be men and women and children of forgiveness, to let go of the sins people commit against us and to move toward you. In the next two hours, there will be a thousand things that try to distract us, that turn our hearts and minds toward the fearful realities of this world. And I ask God through your Holy Spirit that you would protect us from those voices and distractions so that we can remember nothing in this world matters more than our connectedness to you our bondedness to you, and, and we say together, I speak on behalf of every believer in this room, thank you for creating with us a bond that can never be broken. I pray that you would help us to trust that that's true and that trust would inform every decision we make in this world. Thank you so much for being kind to us. Thank you for forgiving us Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.